Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Morning, Southbridge. You guys sound energetic. Last Sunday, it was kind of like foggy outside. Everybody's low energy. I'm glad you're here. You're ready to go today, right? All right, we're going to be in John chapter 16. Those of you who like to get a head start on where we're at in the Bible, but as you turn there, uh, just if you're a guest, I just want to thank you. There'll be somebody that talks to you about what to do after the service, and we got a gift for you and things like that, but I just want to thank you for coming and checking us out, meeting here at a school, and don't know what that's like, and public school, are they even allowed to talk about Jesus? Do you want me to talk about you? I don't know. You're going to find out what's going to happen here in just a moment, but I'm glad you're here. So thanks for coming and checking us out. I hope that you've had a good week this week. I know some of you haven't, and you just kind of made it here, and I believe the Lord's going to speak a word into your life to refresh you and encourage you today. Those of you who've had a great week, we, we, I've had a great week this week, our church had a great week, and uh, if you, for those of you who want updates about the campus, drive by there today, uh, just a mile down the road on Strickland Road, they painted uh, the main building that's over there, and, and it looks awesome, I think, and so you go over there, if you don't think it looks awesome, I'm sorry, pray about that, and uh, we'll have a one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, and so we'll have some unity here uh, in that, but drive through the campus, pray about us moving over there, and what God's going to do there, uh, be praying about what's going to happen here this morning too, we've had a great weekend as a leadership, as a church, uh, one of I, I don't, if you're a guest, by the way, I'll never just call you out from the stage and be like, hey, you in the back, it's your first time here. Not going to do that. Uh, but I do want to point out a friend that I have here in town. Um, he, he's a mentor of mine. He and his wife planted a church uh, about 30 years before we started Southbridge Fellowship and then poured into our lives to invest in my wife and I. And so Bill and Carolyn Wellens are here with us today. Bill and Carolyn, would you just stand up for just a moment? We can give you just a thank. They've, they're a huge part of our church, even though they've only physically been able to attend a couple times, their, their fingerprints are all over this church and just the way that they poured into our hearts of trying to be a church that's really kingdom-minded. They want to try to build our own kingdom. We don't exist just for the sake of trying to get a bunch of people to show up at a place on Sunday, but we want to have an impact in our city. Uh, we talk about all the time connecting people to Jesus for life change, and, and we just believe we pour into you on Sunday mornings, and then you're scattered around this city to connect other people that you come into contact with on a construction site, at a pharmacy, at the Starbucks, where you live, work, play. And, and then God does an amazing thing, and he's been doing that. And a lot of that came from Bill and Carolyn's investment, my wife and I. And so this weekend they were here, and they were meeting with our deacons and talking to them about how to care better and, and love better our body and meeting with our elders and trying to help us be better elders. And so just thanks so much for being here. And I'll try to not preach to you and, you know, the pressure of you being here uh, today and just let the audience of one God be my audience today and, and, uh, and preach. And I believe that God's given us a word for all of us this morning from John chapter 16. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll open up the scripture. All right. Father, thank you that we gather and uh, we're not just, the, you know, the Rotary Club or some, you know, fraternity that gathers together and just meets because we want to get together. That we come and worship you, King Jesus. And uh, what an encouragement to my soul just to see faces of different people with different races and different ages and different experiences in life. But we all have one king, and we come to you, and I know that they believe in the same king that I believe in. And Father, will you speak through my words in a moment and, and do what you want to do and speak what you want to speak, not what I have planned even. Just do your thing in our midst. And for some people here that have never truly experienced tangibly your presence, I pray that you, you would have them do that right now. And for those who need conviction, bring conviction. Those who need encouragement, bring encouragement. Those who need rebuking and training and teaching, bring that. God, will you just be so present here that you do a thousand different things through one word that gets spoken. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, have you ever had a case of mistaken identity 
where somebody thought you were someone else, or maybe you were talking to someone, and you thought they were someone else. And I was talking to my wife and my daughter uh, this morning, and, and my 11-year-old daughter gave me permission to share this story, just so you know. Uh, but she and I were hanging out in Briar Creek, which is over by the airport, you know, one exit away from here, uh, a couple weeks ago. And we bumped into a family we hadn't seen in a couple years. We were talking to them, and, and she's a pretty gregarious, outgoing person. She says, how's your daughter Margaret doing? I can't remember what they said back, and we were done, and I didn't think much of it. And we were walking out to the car, and she looks at me, and she says, Dad, I don't think they have a daughter Margaret. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm trying to remember. What did they say when you said that? I can't remember exactly what got said. I was like, here's the deal. We'll call your mom. And so I call Shanna up. I'm like, Shanna, hey, we just bumped into so-and-so. I hadn't seen them in a while, and by the way, do they have a little girl named Margaret? My wife's like, no, why would you ask that question? And I'm just look over at Ava, and I'm like, girl, you just went for it. I'm so proud of you in that moment that you went for it. At least you were bold in that. And so we just kind of laughed it off afterwards. We were embarrassed, but we came to a moment of realization that we had that mistaken identity. And what you'll find is oftentimes when there's a case of mistaken identity, there ends up being a moment of realization. And so some of you have maybe had a similar experience to what we had a couple weeks ago, or, or if you could just Google, you can even Google right now, I don't mind, but you just Google different stories of mistaken identity, you'll find all kinds of things. Some are just embarrassing, like what I mentioned. Some of them are funny, you just laugh them off. Some of them are really serious. You see people that have gone to jail before because they were in a lineup and they look like somebody who committed a crime. They didn't commit the crime, and they end up spending some time in jail because of that, and that's a pretty serious deal. Sometimes you'll, you'll see, if you, you Google it, there's some famous stories out there about people who actually had funerals for them, but they were alive in the hospital. There was a tragedy, plane crash, car crash, different stories that are out there. And they thought that one person was being buried and actually it was someone else. And someone else was in a coma or things like that. And sometimes it's serious. But oftentimes what you see is that with a mistaken identity, there's a moment of realization. Now, why am I talking to you about that today? Let me tell you why I'm talking about that. We'll get to John 16 here in just a moment. And we're going to talk about a member of the Trinity. If you're new to church and you're not used to the language Trinity, we believe as, as Christians, one of the fundamental beliefs we have is that God is one, but he's three persons, three in one. One in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today we're going to be talking about a member of the Trinity that oftentimes is mistaken. Many people are confused about. Some people think just anything mystical in my life, that must be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just kind of a power or a force that happens in our lives. And so we've got all this like, confusion, different things that happen, and, and here's often what happens. We've got mistaken identity with the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and for some of you, it's just going to be a reminder to you, and hopefully that's an encouragement to your soul still. But for some of you, you're going to realize, that's who the Holy Spirit, you're going to have this realization moment where a light goes off and it changes the way you relate to God. For some of you, what we're going to talk about could be revolutionary in your Christian journey. And so today, as we go to John chapter 16, I want you just to ask this one question. Who is the Holy Spirit? John chapter 16, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the gospel of John together. And in John chapter 13, we enter into this spot where, where the life's been going fast for Jesus. Life and ministry of Jesus, feeding 5,000, walking on water, curing diseases, lepers, all this stuff's happening. And then you get to John chapter 13, and it's like John hits pause. And now we're going to watch this in slow motion. As he goes through the last hours of Jesus' life, and there's no more crowds. It's not about his public ministry anymore. He's alone with his 12 closest followers in John chapter 13, and he washes their feet, and he shows them humility, and he shows them when you put someone else's interest above your own, what love really looks like, and he says, here's, the, here's how the world's going to know you're my followers, if you love one another the way that I've loved you. But also in that chapter, he says to them something that's earth-shattering, I'm leaving. My hour has come. I'm going to die. Now think about what that feels like if you're one of the disciples. You've left everything to follow Jesus, 
He's only been, you've only been with him for three and a half years. Like, you left your family, you left your job, you left everything. You just shattered their dreams. And then he says, one of you is a traitor. And you're going, is it me? And if it's not me, at least there's somebody that's been close to me that's betraying me too. You're being abandoned? You've been betrayed? And he says, you're all going to fail. And he looks at Peter and he says, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. He's the boldest of the whole crew. He's just said, I'll die with you. Jesus goes, no, you don't even know your own heart. And they're troubled. Then John chapter 14, you know what he says to them? Don't let your hearts be troubled. (laughs) Oh, okay, that's easy to say, Jesus. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. He's claiming to be God in that moment, by the way. He says, trade your troubled heart for a trusting heart. And he talks about how he's the way, that he's the truth, that he's the life, that no one, there's no exception throughout human history, that no one comes to the Father except for through me because he is one with God, that he is God, that he provides the way to God. He's the truth about God. He's the life that you've always wanted. And then he goes on and he starts talking about the Holy Spirit. He introduces him in John chapter 14. In verse 16, he says, the spirit of truth, the helper. And in verse 26, the spirit of truth, the helper. But then in chapter 15, we saw last week, he talks about this analogy, this metaphor, this extended metaphor about a vine and the branches, and you're supposed to be fruitful, but he never commands you to be fruitful. He says, abide in me. It's so foundational to the whole Christian life. But oftentimes we want to exchange intimacy with Jesus for activity for Jesus, but that's because we want immediate results, and intimacy takes time. He says, you, you seek intimacy with you, abide in me, depend upon me, rely upon me. And then he goes on in John chapter 15, we didn't get to, get to last week, and he starts telling them about persecution. So the news keeps getting worse. And then look at what he says in John chapter 16 as he introduces us again to the Holy Spirit. I said these things to you to keep you from falling away. So that's a danger for them. I said these things so that you wouldn't fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Now we just read that and it's like you won't be able to go to the same church anymore. No, no, that's not what it is. You're going to be kicked out of life as you know it. Your kids aren't going to be able to go to the schools they currently go to. You're not going to have a job. Like you're, This means poverty, social isolation. We're going to kick you out of the synagogues. Indeed, he says it gets even worse than that, verse 2. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They're going to kill you in God's name because you're serving God. And Jesus tells them why. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Now, Peter's actually said to him, where are you going? But Peter was doing it in self-interest. What he's saying is, you don't, you're not interested in why I'm leaving. You're not interested in what, what's happening where I'm at. You're not interested in those things. You're so consumed with your problem. We see that with, with what Jesus says next in verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, Jesus commanded them in chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. <laughs> but he knows how real life works. So your hearts are troubled. Sorrow has filled your heart. And all that sets us up for what he says in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. (laughs) So you think about what's happening here. They're devastated. And the primary reason is because Jesus is leaving. And then Jesus looks at him and says, it's to your advantage that I'm leaving. It's better that I go away. Which is, I was thinking about that this week. It reminded me of a game I used to play when I was a youth pastor with kids. We have like a small group or a Bible study or whatever, and you kind of got to warm them up to get them talking. So some of you are small group leaders. You might try to play this game this week with your small group, kind of icebreaker type game. It was called Would You Rather. Ever played that game before? Would you rather? You ask somebody a would you rather question, and then here's the key. If you're writing your own questions and you think about that this week as a small group leader, you either ask two good things 
or two bad things? Don't put a good and a bad thing, because then it's an obvious answer. Two good things or two bad things? And so if you're playing with little kids, some of you, you know, work in bridge kids, and so next week you go in there and say, hey, kids, just want to get you thinking about something. Would you rather have elephant ears or a unicorn horn come out of your forehead? And you kind of give them that scenario. And there's a lose-lose situation in that, right? You don't learn much about the question when you ask the question. You learn about the person who answers the question because they answer the question based on how they view the world. So if you ask an adult, you might ask a question like this. Uh, would you rather go back and be five years old again, knowing everything you know now, and be five years old, or would you rather know that you only have five years to live? And different people will answer that question differently based on their stage of life, based on what they know now, <laughs> based on how far away from five years old they are. There's lots of things you learn about the person based on how they answer the question. Would you rather live 100 years in the future or 100 years in the past? Would you rather? Would you rather have the ability to fly or the ability to be invisible? Like, we just make up all kinds of stuff. Would you rather never be able to stop talking or never be able to speak again? Would you rather? How you answer the question tells us something about you. Now, here's the reality. I don't know this for sure, but I'm about 99% positive that if the disciples had been asked the question, would you rather that Jesus stay there with you face to face or he send his spirit to live within you, I'm pretty confident that 11 out of 11 of them, because Jesus isn't there anymore, would say, you stay here. But Jesus is saying, you're wrong. And the problem is the way that you view the world and that all you can see right now is your problem. And you don't realize what I'm doing. And I've got a better plan. It is to your advantage. The very thing that you're most grieving about in this moment is to your advantage. God is sovereign, isn't he? He's got a plan bigger, and he's usually doing about a million things that we can't even see and have no idea about in the midst of what we are so focused on. And here he says, it's better. But you think about what he could have said. Think about what he could. It's better because what? It's better because, and you'd think that he might talk about redemption. It's better because if I don't leave, that means I don't go to the cross. That means I don't die. That means after three days, I don't rise from the dead. That means I don't ascend into heaven to be with the Father. That means you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. That means that you are without hope and without God. He doesn't say that. He could have. So what does he say? Look at the passage. Look at the passage. What does it say? So if I don't leave, I can't send you the Spirit. He calls him here the Helper, which should have, I don't know what's going on exactly in the minds of the disciples, but should have them going, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is, who is the Holy Spirit that it's better than having Jesus face-to-face -face with me? And we see at least three answers to that question in our passage today. The first one is this, that we see it just from this title that was given in verse 7. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Now, what does it mean these are helper? If you look here, he set this whole thing up, and he's telling them about the difficult situation that they're in, that they're going to get put out of the synagogues, that the hour's coming when people are going to kill them, and they're going to think they're actually offering service to God. And then he says, your hearts are so grieved, so sorrowful right now. Here's what it means to be helper. It means that not like a personal assistant, not like, hey, I need to get some laundry done. Oh, but I got the Holy Spirit. We're good. The laundry's going to get done. No, that's not what it means. Some of you are like, man, that's what I wish it meant not what it means. In fact, it's kind of confusing even to Bible translators. I was reading today from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and there are lots of different English Bibles that are out there, and if you have a different English Bible, you might look at it and go, well, my Bible doesn't say he's the helper. If you have an old King James Bible, it says the comforter. If you have the old NIV Bible, it says counselor. If you have a new NIV Bible, it says advocate. <laughs> Wait, it's the same, but what? If it was published in 1984, it says counselor. If it was published in 2011, it says 
advocate. Why? Well, maybe because of our therapeutic culture. They didn't want to misportray what counselor meant. I'm not saying counselors are bad. It's not bad to have therapists. I go to a counselor. I'm not saying that. But this word doesn't mean what we oftentimes think of when we think of counselor. It's got more legal connotations, so they change it to advocate. Why does the English Standard Version say helper? Why does the King James say comforter? Here's why. There's only one word, and most of the New Testament was written in Greek. Some of it's in Aramaic. And then we speak English, and so we're trying to put it into our language, and sometimes there's words in Greek that are hard to translate directly into English because we don't have one word that encompasses all that that word means. And so what that word means, it's the Greek word paraclete, at the verbal root, just the the essence of what it means, it means to come alongside. And so he's an advocate for you, he leads you into truth, we'll see later in this passage, and so when you start to believe lies, he he brings the truth into the situation, points you ultimately back to Jesus Christ, is the passage that we read with Pastor Seth a few moments ago. But he's not just your advocate, he brings comfort in times of trouble and difficulty, and he he helps you. So what does it look like for him to help you? How do you see that? Well, you've got to go to the context. Remember, the meaning of these words will always come from the context that surrounds them. That's the key when you're studying your Bible to so know the context. So what is our context here? He said in verse 6, the grief of sorrow has filled your heart. And so try and imagine being one of the disciples for a moment. You've just left everything to follow Jesus. You're banking everything. It's like some of you have gone in on a business, all of your retirement fund, everything was in on that, and then it falls through. You, you banked up, you left your family, you left everybody to move and be with this person that you're going to marry, and they're not who you thought they were. Like, there's lots of ways our dreams are shattered. Your whole, you've your whole life thought you were going to have kids, and you've struggled with infertility. You had a plan for what was going to happen in the next 20 years, and the doctor calls. It's one of those moments, like, the greatest grief you can experience happens. In fact, the word for grief in verse 6, the word it says sorrow in the English Standard Version, is the word the Greeks use for a small child when their parent died. Talk about your world falling apart. Your parents are your world when you're a kid. And they're just gone. And that's what's just happened to these guys. Their problem is so painful for them, they can't see past their problem. And later he's going to say in verse 12, I have many things to say to you. You can't handle them. I'm not telling them to you right now because you wouldn't even hear them in the moment. That's the context. And how does the Holy Spirit help us? He's, he's with us in those moments. Have you ever been in those moments before? You can't even see past your own pain? I was thinking about it this week. I remember the, the first funeral that I ever did as a pastor at Southbridge. We were new. We were meeting at the movie theater. There was this wonderful young lady that started coming to our church. And she only attended for about two, two months, two and a half months. Ended up praying to receive Christ as her Savior uh, while she was at our church. In a moment of desperation and despair, she took her own life. Now, that was a bad decision. The most important decision she ever made was trust in Christ. I didn't really know her family. Her family heard that she had been attending our church, and so they asked me to do the funeral. And I remember getting the call to come over and see that family and walking into that home, and it was utter despair. And I wished I had words to say to fix it. But I remember sitting there next to her brother, who was my age, and he was bigger than me, and he literally just fell into my arms and was weeping in my arms. And I wanted to say something, but there were no words. That's where these men are at. And Jesus told them, you're going to have the help to come alongside, but it's even better than coming alongside just so you know, believer in Jesus Christ, not just everybody, not to everybody, but if you know Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God living in you. Romans 8 9 says that if you have Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. 
And so it's even, it's even better than just, he comes along, he's there, he shows up in times of trouble. No, he's already living within you, and some of you need to hear this word today. There's probably one or two people here that need to hear this, and so I'm going to say this. This wasn't from my study this week, but I want you to know this. I think sometimes as Christians, we think that God's presence means he's kind of watching our lives, like neutral observer, and just seeing the things that are happening. He's living within you. Do you know what that means? He's experiencing it with you. He's not just aware of what's happening in your life. He's going through it as you're going through it. It's your advantage to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Let me read you a couple of verses so you know that I'm not making this up. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about this. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's up on the screen behind me. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Not just elect Christians, not the special Christians. If you know Christ, you've got the Spirit. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 says this, And because you are sons, could say daughters, because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 says the Holy Spirit is a deposit that we have until the day of redemption, guaranteeing our inheritance, our eternal inheritance from God. You've got the Spirit of God living inside of you. He walks with you. So Christian, you are never alone. Now, did you see that verse that came up while we were singing the songs? I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know the context of that verse? Don't find your security in money is the context of that verse. Because I am I'm your security. He is with you through your times of trouble and all the other things you want to go to to get safe or to get comfort or to find escape. And he's going, I'm with you. That's our helper. But what does he help us do? Does he just help us make it through? Does he help us kind of just endure? Because in this world we'll have trouble and it stinks and it's just rough and so we just got to make it. No. Look at the context. What's the context again? Remember, the context is always going to give us the meaning. He helps us accomplish our mission. And just help us make it in the midst of difficulty, even in a time that would be so bad that people think they're serving God by killing you, he's going to be with you, present with you. It's how Jesus fulfills the promise in the Great Commission, lo, I'm with you always. But what is the mission that we're his witnesses? And that's Acts 1.8. You see that for all of us followers of Jesus Christ. You will, be, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. But it's right here in our context. Go to chapter 15, right before we started reading verse, chapter 16, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15 say this. But when the Helper, same Holy Spirit, same title, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. Not two separate witnesses, by the way. The Spirit's going to speak in your heart, and you're going to speak those words. Because you have been with me from the beginning. So you're going to talk about what does it mean to be a witness? A witness in a case. You don't tell about what you think happens. We're not interested in your opinion. We don't know all the things you believe. We want to know what did you see. As a witness, you talk about what has your experience with Jesus been? You don't need to tell my story. You don't need to tell everything that happened from the Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Revelation to the end of the book. You don't have to, you don't have to read every verse. But you know what happens is you're God's witness. You know how this world was transformed? God used these men to be witnesses around the world because they shared with the people they knew that then shared with the people they knew that then shared. It wasn't because they... Paul never hopped on a plane to Australia, FYI. Peter never made it to America. So sorry, that's like the promised land, right? And he didn't make it. Well, it's so bad. Like, what happened was they, they impacted their world for Christ, and God impacted the world for Christ. And some of you hear sometimes about, you know, we're supposed to reach this world for Jesus, and it's like overwhelming. Who am I? I'm just an ordinary person. Let me just back, think about who he's talking to here. These guys are kind of losers if you read the Bible. Have you, like, read the Gospels and you think, do you know what their nickname is from Jesus? Ye of little faith. 
Think about what, he, what does he say to them more than anything else? Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Take courage. There's a storm. We're going to just chill out. Just be quiet, waves. Would you guys relax? You got me. They're afraid. They've got no faith. But then you read the book of Acts, and it literally says in the book of Acts, they turn the world upside down. These men are turning the world upside down. How does that happen? If you read Christian history, these guys in moments, in hours from when Jesus is saying this to them, they're all going to scatter because they're afraid. But almost all of them die for their faith. Boldly. Let me read you a little, little summary that you can find. You can just Google this and find this information pretty quick. It says, Peter, Andrew, James, and the, James, the son of Elpheus, they were all crucified. That's how they died. Bartholomew was one of the 11 guys that's here in the story. He was whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, another one, he was beheaded. So was the apostle Paul. Thomas, remember Thomas? We always call Thomas the doubter. He's the one in John chapter 11 who said, let's go to Jerusalem with Jesus and die with him. He's here, he's courageous, he's with Jesus, but when Jesus gets arrested, he flees like everybody else. He, was, he went to India with the gospel, he was speared to death. Mark, who writes the gospel of Mark, he was dragged to death through the streets of Alexandria. How is it that these men that are cowards become courageous? How is it that these men that have little, you, you little faith people, it's cute, you, you cute little faith there. How do they turn the world upside down? Maybe there's something to what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, before he gives them the mission that you're going to be my witnesses. When he says in verses 4 and 5, and you can look it up on your own, or we can pop it up on the screen. He says, basically, he says this, don't try this alone. Wait, you will be my witness. If the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1a, you'll be my witnesses. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. What is that? That's like our home. In Judea, that's like our city. In Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, that's wherever God's going to send you. We live in a pretty transient place. Who knows where you're going to live in five years? And wherever God put you're his witness, you tell about what he's done in your life. Wherever you go with the interests that you have, God, that's not a mistake that you like what you like that's different than what I like. And some of you play fantasy baseball. I have no idea how you keep track of all that stuff. I hate baseball. It's like the worst sport ever. They need a linebacker to tackle somebody, and they need a pitch clock to make this thing go faster. But some of you love it, and that's awesome. Do you know why? Because the body of Christ is diverse. I would much rather watch football. i got my friend right here. He loves rugby. And you know what? And we have those interests, and you can talk about how there can be idolatry, and that's possible. Any good thing can become an idol. But God gave you, he made you the way you are so that you'll go to the places you go to, so you'll like the things that you like. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus as you play fantasy baseball, as you go to buy coffee, as you go roller skating, whatever it is you do. And then he's going to use you, maybe not to change the world, he'll use you to change your world for Jesus Christ. And how's he going to do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit that will empower you in the moment. Right now, you might not have the power to do it, but he'll empower you in the moment to do it because that's what happens with these guys. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, wait, wait, don't go. Don't go be my witnesses. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And that happens in Acts chapter 2 for these guys. And then every person after that as a believer, when you trust Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit within you, an inheritance, or a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. If you, don't, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. So you're not a Christian. And so what does the Spirit do? The Spirit helps you, even in times of trouble, helps you do what? Fulfill his mission of being his witness. What else does he do? If you look at the passage and read the next part of the verse, he, he brings our conviction. The Holy Spirit brings our conviction. 
And before I even read the verses, it's going to be, if you want to look at it ahead of time so you know I'm not making this up, verses 8 through 11, before I even read that, let me just say I realize it's not popular, it's not kosher, most people don't want to talk about guilt, and most people have been told any guilt they experience is false guilt. I'm not talking about false guilt. And most people don't want to talk about conviction. And some people will even say, talking about guilt is not the gospel. Let me tell you something. Without guilt, you don't have the gospel. Without conviction, you cannot become a Christian. And so you're taking away real genuine conversion when you take away conviction because you didn't become a Christian because God helped you through some difficult experience and you decided to be, have him be part of your life. See, Jesus didn't come to be your life coach. He didn't come to be your advisor. He didn't come to be some help, self-help guru to you. He's a savior. What he saves you from is sin. Now, we don't like to talk about sin. I'm going to tell you what sin is. Sin is, is a word that we use to talk about rebellion against God. It's when we think that we know better than God. We do our own thing. Sometimes we consult him. We know what he says. We still do our own thing. Sometimes we don't even think about what he says. We just do what seems right to us. That's sin. It's an affront to God, and it means that God's wrath is coming against us. If you don't think that's true, and you're like, this is old school, he's trying to throw some condemnation on me, let me tell you something, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation on you. If you're not in Christ, there is condemnation on you. Here's what the Bible says about sin. I'm going to read some verses without commenting on them, just so that you can, God can just take his word and put it in your heart. Ephesians 2, verses 1, and 3, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, judge anybody, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, as is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. One more. First John 1 John 1.8 if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you, if you take away guilt and you take away conviction, you take away the gospel, you take away genuine conversion, you also take away one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit, which it says right here in our passage. It's his work to bring our conviction, and that's a good thing, just so you know, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Look at verses 8 through 11, chapter 16 here. And when he comes, talking about the helper, talking about the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he unpacks those three things in the next three verses. Verse 9 is sin, verse 10 is righteousness, and verse 11 is judgment. But the because statements are key. Look what he says. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Amen. And so here he talks about Conviction, you know what conviction is? Conviction means this. It's, it appears 17 times in the New Testament, that word for convict, conviction. It means most of the time to expose someone's sin. And that is a good thing. Why, why is that a good thing? Let me ask you a would you rather question. Would you rather hide your sin and live your life in fear that someone will find out, or have your sin exposed and have at least the opportunity for freedom? What would you rather? 
And everybody, based on how you view the world and how you view life, will probably answer that question different. But it is a gift from God to convict you, to expose our sin. Think about, you know, I know all the things that are happening in the news right now are very delicate things. Think about Bill Cosby. In no way am I saying he's a victim. He is guilty of what he did. But that man that was known as a picture of fatherhood to our culture for decades, for decades, he's going to jail now. He's lived in prison for decades, a prison of secrecy, a prison of darkness, trying to hide his sin that no one would find out. What a gift that he's been given right now. How will he respond? I have no idea. But the light's been shown on his sin. And he's going to jail now, but now he's got the opportunity to at least turn to Christ. You know, hide it in, why, who are you hiding it from now? To, what ha, when it talks about conviction in this passage, it's like what happens in the book of 1 Samuel with the King David. If you, if you know that book, then you know what I'm talking about. If not, what happens is the most famous king in Israel, David, done a great job, done a bunch of stuff for God, but here's the problem. He's very proud and entitled. And he takes something that's not his, someone else's wife. And he sleeps with her. And he covers it up for about a year. And then a guy who's obedient to God, puts his own life at risk, and loves David, comes to him. His name's Nathan. And he tells him a story. And for the sake of time, I won't tell you the whole story. But the gist of the story is it's an analogy about a guy who's really entitled, a guy who's really proud, a guy who thinks of other people as objects. And he tells David this story. And David gets ticked. At the climax of his anger, Nathan goes, you're the man. And that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. He, he exposes our sin, and it's a gift to us because now, now we can have freedom. What is David saying? Psalm 32. If you read Psalm 32 on your own, he says, when I kept my sin in private, when I kept it high hidden, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped like the heat of the summer. We know what that's like in the Carolina, don't we? Amen, everybody. Join Steve. We got it. Amen. All right? It's hot. You go outside and you're like, I'm going to get some, I'm going back inside. Like, this is terrible. He's saying, that's what it was like in my life when I tried to hide my sin. But it's against you primarily, God, that I've sinned. Now, he killed a man and committed adultery with a woman. First, it was a problem with God because that's what sin is, the barrier between God. And what the Holy Spirit does is it exposes what sin truly is and it separates us from God. And when we're in sin, before we know Christ, there is condemnation. There is guilt. Now, when you know Christ, there's no more condemnation because all of that was taken care of at the cross of Christ. Amen? And, and there are consequences. We make you know, sinful decisions, bad decisions as believers, but all that is heaped on the cross of Christ. But the Holy Spirit, still, even as for believers, will convict us of our sin, bring it to light so that we can walk in fellowship with our Father. What a gift. But did you see here in this passage... It doesn't say he convicts all sins. It's singular. Did you notice that? Like, it's key. The words are key. God's word is key to us. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, singular, and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, singular. And what's the sin? Well, that's because phrase tells us what the sin is, because they do not believe. It's the sin of unbelief. It's the only sin that ever sent anyone to hell, by the way. I could, I could ask you the question, what's the greatest sin anyone could commit? And some people will come with, like, murder. We do a survey, go to Crabtree Mall, do a survey and talk to people. Murder and rape and whatever, theft and all kinds of, you know, whatever their thing and whatever their worldview is. 
You don't go to hell because of murder. You don't go to hell because you're jealous. You don't go to hell because you're angry. You go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. Now, at the root of every sin is unbelief, just so you know. Even as believers, we don't trust God, so we do things on our own. It's unbelief. He says, here, what does he expose? He exposes our unbelief. And what else does he expose? He exposes righteousness. But we already read Romans chapter 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. We read that in Isaiah too. So if you're Jewish and you're here, it's in your book. What is he talking about righteousness? He's talking about that he shows us Christ's righteousness. Jesus isn't with us anymore. He reveals to us what Jesus says. You want to talk about what Jesus says about sin, what Jesus says about righteousness? Go and listen. Don't listen to your favorite podcast preacher. Go listen to Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 5. He preaches a sermon there. And you know what he says? He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you're hosed. None of you got a chance. You cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 5.20, if you want to look them up. He summarizes that sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. So that everybody can sit there and go, no one's righteous. Not one. I'm not righteous. I got no chance. Do you know what that means? You need a Savior. Not an advisor. Not an assistant. You need a Savior to save you from your sin. One that was righteous, and that's the gospel. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. You'll never see that apart from the Holy Spirit working in your life. The Holy Spirit exposes that to us. And what else he exposes? He exposes judgment. And you think about what he says here. He exposes judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's talking about Satan. talking about the devil. And think about what happened at the cross of Christ. What's about to happen in the context of this passage. That Jesus can go to the cross. And do you know what it looks like? That Jesus is being judged. As a crowd chants, crucify him. And they crucify him for being the king of the Jews. He's committed no sin. They crucify him for claiming to be the king of the Jews. And on that day, it looks like Jesus is condemned. And it looks like the ruler of this world has won. But if you've ever been to church on Easter, or you've read the rest of the story, you know what happens. He is risen. Amen. And because he is risen, sin, where's your, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? There is no more. What actually happened at the cross is he judged the enemy. The darkness of this world, sin and death, stands condemned. And all who stand with him stand condemned. But all who don't, you have Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. Your sin of unbelief has been forgiven because you believed upon Jesus Christ. How do you save? It's not clean up your act. It's not do better stuff. It's not be more righteous. It's not, you know, pay, your, pay the verdict. No, you'll pay for all of eternity for your sin because you've sinned against an eternal God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We said it in our call to worship this morning. Believe. He exposes that. What a gift of the Holy Spirit to be our convictor. What else does he do? He's our guide. Look at the next part of this passage. Still have many things to say to you. Even Jesus ran out of time. <laughs> Makes me feel so good. <laughs> but he's, really, he says, you can't handle what I'm about to tell you. So I'm not gonna, Jesus knows. We, this is a picture of his compassion. What is he alluding to here? He's probably thinking about their martyrdoms. I could tell you how you're, he tells Peter later, and we'll get to that in John. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. And how does he, what does he guide us into? Into all the truth. So like 
like our advocate, that when the enemy starts to bring accusations and he speaks truth into those scenarios, and, and he ultimately always leads us back to Jesus. So if you think you're being led by the Spirit, he's leading you something that's contrary to Jesus or contrary to God's Word, that's not the Spirit. And the enemy comes as an angel of light. The Spirit will always lead you back to Jesus Christ. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Just as the Son only did what the Father told him to do, the Spirit's only going to do what the Son says to him. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for... He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's your guide. Your guide into truth. Have you ever been guided before? Have you ever been on like a guided tour or gone on vacation and gone on some you know, expedition? They guide you or if you've skydived, you, know, you have somebody that straps to your back. They don't just let you jump out of a plane. You have somebody who knows what they're doing. is going to protect you. And there's all kinds of illustrations we could use to talk about being a guide. But I was thinking about, uh, about back in January, my wife and I went to San Francisco, and we went to Alcatraz. You heard Alcatraz, the prison, the rock? Okay, it's kind of got a reputation. as like the, un, the They say no one's ever escaped, but then there's like the Discovery Channel show that talks about these three guys that escaped, and there's a conspiracy about it, and then you can like dive into and try and figure out all this stuff, but it sits in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. The water's super cold. They say there's a bunch of sharks in there. I didn't get in to check it out, so I can't verify that. But what happened was we took this boat, and we go over to Alcatraz Island, we get off the, the boat, and there's all kinds of people, different nationalities and, and whatnot, and this employee gets up for Alcatraz, and he says, here, go down to this room, watch this movie. If you need translation, they give you these little earpieces, and when you're done, go to this other room, and they're going to give you this earpiece that'll guide you through the prison. So we go in, and we watch this movie, 15, 20 minutes long, and it tells the history publicity of the place when it first came out, what was going on in culture at that time, people that protested against it, people that were there, some of the famous prisoners, and told us all this stuff about the, the prison. Then we leave, and had I not gone and gotten the earpiece, let me tell you what I would have done. It would have probably taken me 15 or 20 minutes to go through this place. I'd have gone down to one of the cells, I'd have looked in there and been like, that's small, that stinks, do the crime, got to do the time. That's all my compassion. Then I walk out of the next thing, and <laughs> cafeteria, the Food must be bad here. Yeah, that's not very good. And then, what did they do with the knives? And then walk into another place, and the library didn't have any books in it. And you go out to the courtyard, and you see these different things. And it'd probably take me 15 or 20 minutes. I'd have been to all the spot, been there, done that. I didn't buy a T-shirt. Could have bought a T-shirt. The same as if I'd have had the earpiece. I'd have seen all the same stuff. But you know what I did is I went and I got the earpiece. Put it on English one. That was perfect for me. <laughs> I listened to the earpiece, and they, it was so specific. It actually said, you know, go down to, and they named the different, you know, corridors these prison cells were on, different streets, and say, go down to this street, turn down here, go to the fifth cell on the right, turn and look into that cell. And then it starts telling me about what it was like to live in that cell, who some of the prisoners were that lived in that cell, what their stories were, what their experience was like in that prison. So they didn't go over here and see the cafeteria, and they told a story about one time when there was a fight in the cafeteria, what the food was like, some of the food that they hated, some of the food that they loved, uh, how people did try to steal knives and the way that they kept track of them, and all that kind of situation. You go to the library, and they talked about different things people studied, degrees some of the guys got, walked us out to the courtyard, told us about the games that people played, walked us to the front where a couple of guys did try to escape, and what ended up happening to them, and walked us into solitary confinement. Had us close the door, that totally dark inside. And not only did they tell us what it was like to be in solitary confinement and what some of the guys would do so they wouldn't lose their minds while they were in there, they let us hear some of the sounds from the city in San Francisco and talked about what it was like to be a prisoner and to know that life is going on while you're living in there. 
And while you're in solitary confinement, people are laughing and having a good time. And they played, you know, hear some of the songs they would play around this time period for New Year's Eve. And they would have been able to hear this because of how close the island was to the city. And, and then I started thinking about how much that tour was like many of our Christian lives. We wake up in the morning and we read about the history of our faith, 15, 20 minutes. And then many of us are like, I would have been without the guide. We go and have the same encounters that every other Christian has. And we see, the thing, been there, done that, got the tea. But we're kind of like, it's kind of like going through the motion. We don't really truly experience it. Because you know what happened when I put that earpiece on? So I didn't just see, here's the cell, here's the cat. It was like I experienced what I was intended to experience at that place. And that's what the Holy Spirit being our guide is like. God intends for you not to just cruise through life on cruise control, by the way, Christian, but that you'd be continually, intimately dependent upon Him and that He would guide you through life, that you would experience it the way that He desires for you to experience this life. And later in the Bible, we'll see that we can quench the Spirit by the way that we live when we get outside of the will of God that we can be filled with the Spirit, that we can walk in step with the Spirit. There are different analogies that are used, but here's something that I think will bring great freedom to you to know. As a Christian, to, to walk with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, or to, to be in step with the Spirit means to be depending upon Him, to be being guided by Him. But what happens is, and you ever think some of you served in the military, have you ever marched with your crew and you're marching along? And What happens if one guy gets out of line? Left, right, left, right, and you're going right, left, right, I'm out. You get back in step. A lot of times what we do as Christians, it's like, well, I got out of step and I just got to go over here and feel bad for a while and kind of pay my penance and feel guilty. No, get back in step. See, dependence upon the Holy Spirit is a moment-by-moment -moment situation. I don't preach this sermon to you and you go, I'm going to depend upon the Holy Spirit and you're good for 30 years. That's not how this works. It's like we talked about last week, the abiding in Christ, the dependence upon Christ. It's, you've got the Spirit of God, though, living inside of you to walk with you through every experience, the most difficult experience that you could possibly experience. And He's going to empower you to fulfill the mission that He's given you. He'll convict you of your sin. He's going to guide you through the whole process. For some of you, for some of you, that's a, a new realization today. You've heard of the Holy Spirit. It's just kind of like this thing you say where you're praying or this force that's out there, but He's a person person of God, if you're a believer in Jesus living inside of you, and for some of you convicting you of sin, for some of you guiding you in the next steps you take in your life, and for some of you, he's just there with you as things come upon you you can't even handle. And we've talked about him today. Let's talk to him. Let's go to him in prayer right now. Dear Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, and you say in your word, we just read it, and so I'm going to ask you to do it. You say that you guide us into all the truth. God, there are hundreds of people in this room right now, and who knows how many watching online at some point. Will you speak truth into their lives right now? For some rebuke, conviction, exposed sin. Some might not know you as Savior. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you what God's Word says. It says that, that we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, that, that what you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ paid for that sin when he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that you call upon him to be your Lord. And when you call upon him to be Lord, he promises you will be saved. That's not rescued out of your environment because you had bad parents or because you live in a bad situation right now. That's rescued from your sin that you are guilty of. And the condemnation that's on you gets thrown upon him at the cross. And if you want to experience that forgiveness and that freedom, call upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior.
for many of you here, you're believers already in Jesus Christ. Maybe he still needs to convict you of sin and, and repent and keep short accounts of sin. And his mercies are not only new every morning, his mercies are new every moment. And you turn to him and ask for his grace, ask for his forgiveness. I read that verse earlier, 1 John 1, 8, that if we claim to be without sin, we lie and we deceive ourselves. The next verse says this, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful, that he is just, that he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He'll restore your fellowship with him and so you confess your sins and turn to him right now. And some of you need guidance in your life. You don't know what to do with your next decision. You're not sure what you're supposed to be doing with your career or whatever relationships that are happening in your life or how to relate differently as you're in new stages with, with, with kids or with your parents or with your spouse and different things are happening and, and everything's not staying static like you thought it would when you planned your life out. And That's great news because you've got, you've got a counselor, a comforter, an advocate, a helper that wants to guide you into the truth and guide you ultimately to Jesus Christ through whatever experiences are happening in your life. Will you ask him to guide you right now? In just a moment, what's going to happen is one of our elders is going to come and, and lead us in the time of communion. If you need to continue to pray, we want to give you the freedom to do that. Just stay there and talk to the Lord. Father God, I pray, I pray that your spirit right now will speak to hearts, comfort and guide. There's some here that are experiencing grief and sorrow. I know that. Will you give them strength? empower them to see things they would never see on their own. We're so focused on our pain, God, that you give us eyes to see some other things that you might be doing. They give us a glimmer of hope about that there's a future. There's, there's still more to come. And you've got a good plan. Would you guide in that? And I'll, I'll conclude our prayer and praying that I believe these are the words that Jesus would pray in Jesus' name. If you need to continue to pray, you do, you do so.